everyone, you are listening to the best podcast ever. The Bite Size Pediatric Podcast. They talk about kids' teeth like mine. And they post every month, which is really great. Everyone is welcome to listen. Let's listen to the next episode with Yasmin and Safe. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Bite Size Pediatric Podcast. Hi everyone, so today we're going to be talking about molar incisor hypomineralization, often abbreviated to MIH. Uh, we chose to talk about this topic because MIH is said to affect one in five people in the UK, so it'd actually be something that you're likely to come across in common practice. Of course, Yasmin and I don't have the experience or knowledge when it comes to MIH, so we are honoured to have Dr Judith Humphreys on the podcast today who can hopefully clear everything up for us and the listeners. Dr. Humphreys is a specialist paediatric dentist based at the University of Liverpool, who recently published a paper on the management of MIH. How are you doing today, Dr. Humphreys? Um, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so the first question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast is simply, why did you choose to specialise in paediatric dentistry? So even before, well, it was around about the same time that I started university I had um, a neighbour who had two children two twins um, a boy and a girl and she I started babysitting them so I was looking after them quite a lot and then in the summer before I started university I actually kind of was essentially like their nanny so I was looking after them four days a week Um, and I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed hanging out with these three-year-olds so I think that was kind of the background to to kind of being interested in paediatrics um but as a undergraduate student I did actually find it quite difficult I think when you're learning about just the kind of basic um ways of doing dentistry then having that adult there watching you you can feel quite self-conscious and under a lot of pressure um so I, I kind of felt like that as an undergraduate but then um as I gained confidence as a foundation dentist um I kind of really started to enjoy it um I did my other interest was oral surgery um so I kind of did quite a few max fax jobs um before I settled on paediatric dentistry and um, I mean, I still like oral surgery, but you can do that in peds. That's the great thing about it. You can do a little bit of everything and you can have your little niche that's your interest. Um, so I then went on to do uh, dental core training year three in paediatric dentistry and fell in love and never looked back. Lovely. <laughs> so were you aware of paediatric dentistry before you started dental school? Did you have that in mind or did you just know that you liked kids? No, not really, to be honest, I think. Um, I kind of knew that obviously dental hospitals existed, um, but I don't think I knew really the different specialties and um, kind of the differences between what happens in a hospital and in primary care. I don't have any um, dentists in the family, so that was something I kind of found out once I started uh, dental school. So you're currently um, in your ST3 year, am I correct uh, in assuming? Yes. And uh, we just want to know how you're finding it and how everything is. Um, so I'm actually very, very nearly finished with my ST3 training. So I kind of officially finished training actually um, in October. Um, and I'm now in what you call the period of grace. So I've kind of finished everything, but you can do an extra six months while you kind of find your next 
job or, or whatever you want to do. Um, so ST3 in general, um, it was quite it was a tough year because um, you have exams at the end of it. Um, I'm also doing, I'm an academic clinical fellow, so that means I've got academic um, time in my training um, and I've been using that time to do a doctorate so that's like a de, a de, another degree at the same time um, so it was a lot of work um, but I'm also I'm nearly finished my doctorate now which is on MIH. I got to sit my exams in October so they were cancelled because of Covid and everything they were meant to be in April last year so I passed them I've nearly finished my doctorate so um, so things are a lot more chilled out now which is nice. Wow, congrats on that. Is that the MPs exams? Yes, it is, yeah. I bet you're sick of it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Right, so let's talk about your paper that you recently published. So for the listeners, it's entitled Management of Molar Incisor Hypomineralization, a one-year retrospective study in the Specialist Secondary Care Centre in the UK. So we just want to ask you, what motivated you to conduct this study um, and what did you aim to measure with this study? So this was part of my um, doctorate that, that I'm just writing up at the moment. So it has three studies in it, and this was the first study. Um, so the, the aim was really um, that my interest is um, the care that children are receiving for MIH in primary and secondary care settings. So the first study was looking actually what are we doing locally in hospital? What actually happens when these children come in to see us? Um, and I couldn't find any published studies um, investigating actually what happens um, in a hospital setting. Um, that doesn't mean that they haven't been done, but I just um, there weren't any that I could see that were published. And so what I wanted to find out really was what are these children being referred for? What kind of treatment might they have had before they were referred in? What was the, the kind of issues that the patient has when they come into secondary care? Kind of what are their symptoms? And then actually to see what treatment did they end up having in a hospital setting. Nice. Nice. Um, but yeah, so before I studied dentistry, I wasn't really aware much about MIH. Um, and I was surprised to read that the prevalence of MIH nationwide is actually 20%, which is high, is quite significant. Um, so do you think there is overall a lack of awareness amongst the public, not the dental community, uh, regarding the existence and prevalence of, of MIH? Yeah, so the study, again, this was done in Leeds, it found the prevalence um, was 15.9% and there aren't any other studies, to my knowledge, that kind of look at the overall prevalence in the UK, but the, the worldwide prevalence is about 14% overall, so it's probably around that. Um, so it is really common, so that's about one in six children. And so whenever I see a patient who comes in, I always kind of explain what it is and say it is really common. We do see it all the time, but people don't seem to be aware of it. Some children, if they've been referred specifically for that. The parents kind of have an idea that something's going on, but they might not know it's called MIH. And because it presents as a spectrum, so you can have really mild cases where they might just have one or two molars that have got some little white speckles on um, or you can have it when it's really severe and all the incisors affected it looks awful the teeth are really sensitive I kind of explain that as well and I think in primary care sometimes maybe for dentists who, who graduated quite a long time ago so maybe kind of 30 years ago they might not be as familiar with what it is because it only really became a 
a thing that was talked about in I think it was 2001 um, they had a, a conference and lots of people were kind of presenting about this phenomenon and then they decided to call it MIH so if you graduated in like the late 80s or the 90s and you you wouldn't have been kind of taught about it as, as like a, a condition as such so sometimes people do confuse it with other things like sclerosis and hyperplasia um but yeah I'd agree that most members of the public don't know what it is really um but I do know a few years ago um one of the leads consultant Stephen Fail and he actually talked to a journalist from The Guardian um, and he kind of explained what it was so hopefully it's something that the public will become more interested in Um, and there's a a website as well called the D3 group it's based in Australia but it's kind of all things enamel dental defects so it's got a bit about amelogenesis and dentinogenesis and the idea is that um, it's for clinicians for scientists and for the public so hopefully it will become something that is more well known in the public yeah the name isn't very catchy either is it it's not very no, it's long. yeah so I do always say to patients I say it's called molar incisor hypomineralization because it affects the adult molars and the adult incisors but you can call it MIH because people can say that <laughs> it's a lot easier <laughs> mm, yeah a nice segue, I guess. So you kind of already explained it, but um, we, of course, wanted to ask what exactly is MIH for people that don't know and what are some possible causes of it? So, yeah, it's a enamel dental defect that affects the first permanent molar teeth and sometimes incisors, but it can just be the, the molars and it's hypomineralization. So that's a um, defect of enamel quality. And um, so all the, the when a tooth comes through, it should be a normal shape and kind of size, but the enamel is hypomineralized. So it's basically got less calcium and phosphate in and it's got more protein in. So it's a lot softer. It can be sensitive because it's a bit more porous. And especially with the molars, when it's more severe, you can get what's called post-eruptive breakdown from the occlusion forces so when people are chewing bits can kind of fracture off which is obviously quite uncomfortable and painful in its more milder forms as I said you can just have like white patches on the teeth and then kind of moderate forms would be more your kind of brown patches little localized areas of post-eruptive breakdown within the enamel and then the more severe cases are those where you've got the sensitivity there might be post-eruptive breakdown and caries as well because these children are at increased risk of caries as well with the incisor teeth the main complaint is normally maybe some sensitivity but the aesthetic and that's something that patients and parents will be aware of so that might be something that they'll come in and say I'm not happy about in terms of the causes so this is something that we still don't know for sure so that's why kind of early identification and prevention is so important because we don't actually know why it happens so um, the best that we can do is to try and spot it as soon as these teeth erupt and then treat it appropriately but the most recent thinking is that there's probably a genetic element to it so they've done Um, studies with twins is more prevalent in twins and more prevalent in identical twins so there's definitely a predisposition but they think there's also an environmental element to it as well well we know that so there's some kind of event that happens usually something like illness that disrupts the amelogenesis so when the tooth is forming the enamel if the child has a severe illness then it 
the body it's dealing with other stuff so then the amelogenesis basically doesn't happen as well as it should and um, but in terms of the different things that might cause that kind of loosely speaking I would normally ask about events in the third trimester of pregnancy at the birth so if you have a child who's maybe premature or they have to have like an emergency cesarean maternal illness and then when the child's actually born up until the age of three years because that's when the crowns of those teeth are, are kind of fully formed and the things that are most commonly quoted are things like respiratory infections so severe illness the use of antibiotics children who maybe have very bad severe asthma or who have cystic fibrosis and and then also fever as well with the antibiotics they don't know for sure is it the actual antibiotics itself or is it actually the the illness that has caused them to need the antibiotics so we don't know exactly what it is but I would I would normally ask has anything happened in that last trimester at birth or in the first three years of life and sometimes people can't think of anything at all but it's, yeah, it's interesting and it's interesting as well because you've got different severities in the same mouth. You can have um, one tooth that's quite mild um, and then you can have one tooth that's got kind of severe caries and looks awful. So it's just an interesting condition because it's not uniform. Um, the condition also, so it's a physical condition mostly, yes. but would you also say that it has like a uh, social and a mental impact to it that's just as important as the physical sure it does so when you think about um physical conditions they will have a an effect kind of um on the quality of the patient's life and so when we're thinking about mih if you've got it very severely and your teeth are crumbling at the back then that might make it difficult to eat it might make it painful to have stuff that's very hot or very cold it can be painful actually to brush your teeth so sometimes with these children you'll see the sixes and they'll, they'll claim that they don't have sensitivity but then they'll have the sixes are completely caked in um, calculus because they're obviously just not brushing because it hurts and then in the, with the incisors usually the younger children are not so bothered about this so when the teeth first come through when they're kind of six seven eight but then as they get older particularly when they're kind of approaching high school then that can become quite a big issue and unfortunately as you said because it's not well known in the public and children can be really mean that children will um, kind of bully children because they'll say you know you're not cleaning your teeth properly and that's not the case at all so it can have a, a really big effect for um, children in terms, terms of their their self-confidence uh, um, and just the, the quality of life but as I've said before it is a spectrum so you could have it really really mild and you've just got these little patches on your posterior teeth on the sixes and you don't even know they might not even be sensitive and then you'll have no issues at all so it's so varied in how it um, presents yeah so it definitely seems that there's um quite a few reasons why this is quite hard to diagnose and for the majority of patients in your paper they were referred to the dental hospital by their GDP so do you feel that most GDPs are able to identify this condition when they're faced with it in practice? So this is actually one of my other studies because I wanted to know that question. Um, so in, in this paper you're talking about, I think I found that 17% of the referrers um, explicitly referred for MIH, but then around 66% referred for another enamel defect. And it was usually hypoplasia because that's what they often uh, confuse it with. And then the rest of them were for caries. And I think there was a few for kind of trauma or anomalies, but not that many. So this other 
other study that I did, which is the second study, it's uh, it's actually getting published in the BDJ, so keep your eyes peeled. And mm. the first part, um, <laughs> um, so the first part, it was it was one survey, but it was kind of in sections. And the first section was basically, can GDPs diagnose MIH? So what I did is I sat and I went through all our clinical photos, for well, probably not all of them, but a lot of clinical photos that we have on our database in the department, looking for children who have MIH. And I had an idea of what different cases that I would want to have. So kind of that full spectrum from the really mild cases when only the molars are affected and then like the the more severe ones. And then the other thing that I haven't spoken about yet is that you can get essentially the same thing in the primary teeth. So that's called hypomineralization of second primary molars. Um, You can see it in the Ds and the Cs sometimes as well, so it's a bit misleading. But if you have it in your primary molars, you're more likely to have it in your permanent molars. So I looked through all these photos and I selected 10 cases. Six of them had MIH in some form. And then I selected four controls so I had some amelogenesis dentogenesis and fluorosis and just caries and then basically with these clinical photos there's a little bit of text that just describe the photo so I kind of tried to give people a little hint of the amelogenesis and dentogenesis those are hereditary conditions so usually someone in the family's got it so I'd say like oh this child has sensitive teeth and all his family have teeth that look the same and little things like that basically and I find that in different situations GDPs can be better or worse at diagnosing it so basically if it's on the molars and the incisors usually people are better at spotting it when it's just on the molars it's not so well spotted if it's more severe people are generally better at spotting it because it's you know if you've got a tooth that's completely destroyed that's quite obvious if it's just like a little white patch on one tooth then if you're not looking for it you might not see it and then the other two findings people weren't very good at spotting it in the primary dentition and when they did they usually called it MIH which it's fair enough so people don't really know the terminology for it in the primary dentition and then if they have caries either on that tooth so on the sixes or in other teeth so if the primary teeth they weren't as good at spotting it so I think we're all kind of trained to look for caries and if you have a really obvious anomaly then you're probably going to see it so if someone has an extra tooth or they've got missing teeth you're going to spot it but sometimes if they've got more subtle MIH and they've got quite significant caries on that tooth. Maybe you're, you kind of see the caries and you don't look for anything else. So those were the main findings, basically. You stated earlier that hypoplasia is often mixed up with MIH. So clinically, what's the difference between the two? So hypoplasia is a defect of quantity. So if you have a hypoplastic tooth, it is going to be either like a, an unusual shape or an unusual texture. So, for example, with amelogenesis imperfecta, you can get different types. Um, if you have hypoplastic type amelogenesis, then you quite often have either like ridges on the tooth, so it looks like they've got little stripes, or like little dimples on the tooth, or they can have just really thin enamel, so it just the teeth just look really small and like the, the enamel is just not as thick as it should be in kind of pointed cusps. So they're kind of like an unusual shape. With hypomineralization, it's that defect of the quality. So the tooth should be the normal size and shape, but it's just kind of made up of softer enamel basically and I think why sometimes people get confused is because um, when you get the posterruptive breakdown 
it then obviously changes shape and that can happen really quickly after the tooth comes through and if you're only seeing a patient every six months if they have teeth that come through kind of two months after their exam in those four months then maybe it's then a a funny shape when they actually come in to see you but with hypoplasia it is normally kind of smooth whereas with hypomineralization it's kind of got this rough edge and again if you're thinking of MIH look at the other molars and the other incisors and if they have hypomineralization then it's probably that you've got post-eruptive breakdown on that tooth that makes sense awesome yeah yeah it does so when considering MIH what dictates whether it's a mild form of the disease or more severe like is there you mentioned a spectrum but um how do you clinically diagnose what part of the spectrum the patients are um so there's different I've kind of spoken about kind of mild moderate and severe and but actually the the kind of definition that I used like to use are the EAPD definition so that's the European Association of Pediatric Dentistry and they just classify the teeth as either mildly affected or severely affected and teeth that are mildly affected would be those ones where they don't have any post-eruptive breakdown they don't have any caries um, and the teeth might be mildly sensitive, but they're not the children who can't brush the teeth because it, um, it's painful and they've got loads of calculus everywhere. So, um, and they don't have any aesthetic concerns. So the incisors are either unaffected or they're just quite mild and the child's not bothered. The severe cases um, uh, with that definition would be those who then have post-eruptive breakdown they've got caries they've got that really severe sensitivity when they're brushing and when they're eating or their incisors have kind of big brown hypomineralized patches that don't look very nice and the child is bothered about it Um, and the reason that I quite like those definitions is because you can basically say well those children who have mild MIH need prevention they need enhanced prevention you need to see them every few months fluoride varnish and fissure sealants but they don't need they shouldn't need anything uh, more than that. Those who have severe MIH are the children who are going to need restorations on the sixes. They might need the teeth taken out at the ideal time um, and they might need some aesthetic treatment on the incisors as well. Mm. Okay. Um, so if a GDP is able to diagnose that a child has MIH, what is their most common mode of treatment that they will default to and is this usually the right approach that they take so I did a in my second study it's a survey that I've done um, and the second paper um, is on kind of treatment planning so it was quite a small sample so I can't say kind of this is what everyone's doing but I can speak about the the people who did my survey and actually they were they were pretty good um, I think the most important thing is the preventive aspects of it because these children are at higher risk of caries so you want to be seeing them every three months doing your fluoride varnishes if you see them when they're over 10 they can have your higher concentration of toothpaste so your durafat 2800 you might want to do fluoride mouth rinses at another time fissure sealants do them on the first permanent molars but just bear in mind that if these teeth are more sensitive then even washing and drying the teeth can be painful that's something you just want to talk through with your patient and check before you just go in with the three in one these children can get quite anxious and you can understand if someone just blows air on your teeth and it hurts and then they don't believe you that it's sore then that you wouldn't really like dentists 
And then in terms of restoring them, if they're restorable teeth, then I think composite is probably the the best thing to use and what's most commonly used. I think sometimes people use GIC because it's quicker and and easier and they might not restore the tooth. They might just put GIC on or it may be a compromise because if you've got a child who's not very cooperative and you have to stop treatment, then that might be the only thing that you can put in. In this study, in the survey, they didn't really use, they didn't use pupil or metal crowns on these teeth and that's because they didn't feel comfortable using these on first parent molar teeth but actually in the paper that's been published in hospital actually we didn't use prefor metal crowns that much either um, and my personal experience of that is that often when these teeth are erupting especially if you think about a lower six usually the distal part of the the tooth it takes a really long time for them to have any distal side of the tooth visible it's usually kind of flush with the gum so if you put a crown on it's just going to go so far subgingival that there is going to be quite damaging so that's usually why I don't put preform metal crowns on as often but I have done it where necessary um and then I think really if you're comfortable then you can take teeth out. Take the teeth out if you've got a tooth which is completely destroyed. Then it's going to have to come out. And if you've got a cooperative patient, there's no reason why that can't be done in primary care. I think maybe the things that um, GVPs get a bit find a bit confusing is maybe when you're thinking about removing sixes, the uh, compensating and balancing and taking into account all those different things. And that is a little bit confusing for everyone. I think apart from maybe orthodontists, they seem to have it sussed. <laughs> um, but even I will sometimes ask an orthodontist and, and kind of be like, okay, what should mm. we do in this? situation nice. mm. so do you put a lot of these children under GA and is that because they're particularly anxious or is that another reason I think yeah these are probably the more anxious children because they do tend to be the ones who've got the severe MIH so the teeth are more sensitive and maybe they have had more treatment primary care prior to referral so they just had more treatment than um, the children with mild MIH and that does tend to increase anxiety but then it's also we're also talking about taking first permanent molar teeth out which are quite chunky some of these children are only eight or nine some of them might not have had very much treatment before we do see some children and all they've had is fluoride varnish before and to go from just having that painted on your teeth to having a local anesthetic and the force of taking out a tooth is quite a lot for a young child to cope with and particularly if they need to say four first permanent molar teeth out if that's under local anaesthetic they've got to come in four times so often mm. when we discuss it with the parents and the the patient they don't feel like they can cope with it um awake and they want to be put to sleep and I think as long as you discuss all the options and the the patient and family are fully informed about the risks of general anaesthetic I think that's appropriate mm. yeah that makes sense are there any guidelines available for dentists and dental students regards to MIH? Yep. Um, so I've kind of written down a list of some of my favourites that <laughs> you can have a look at <laughs> if you want to. So the paper that I really like is um, from the European Association of Pediatric Dentistry and they've got some kind of guidelines um, and they have a little bit about background and then they have a bit about treatment and different options. And that is from 2010, so it is getting a little bit older now, but 
but apparently they are working to renew it and update it. So there might be a new one coming out soon. I read a paper recently by Professor Helen Rod from Sheffield, um, which is an overview of MIH, and that just came out at the end of 2020. And that's really good. That's got kind of the most up-to-date findings on etiology and um, treatment and different methodologies. So that's a really good one. And for the listeners, we'll put all of those links in our social media so you can check them out. So um, I think that nicely concludes the episode for today. And once again, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Dr. Humphreys for such an informative interview. And I think our listeners would have found it extremely useful. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I think that was a really nice, comprehensive summary of MIH. Thank you. So to our listeners, if you go onto our social media pages, which have the handle at MPDSSOC, you can find useful links and information which accompanies these episodes of our podcast, including this one. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay safe and take care of yourselves. Until next time.